Welcome to the Wise Women Diaries podcast. This is where shame and victimhood die. I am a woman that questions everything, so this podcast is a reflection of that. Here we speak on non-mainstream perspectives, like healing our childhood wounds, learning to trust ourselves, the voice of fear versus intuition, and how children are our teachers. We discuss what it looks like to own your power as a woman and step out of the medical paradigm. That's why I am obsessed with interviewing women who trust their bodies and babies in home birth and free birth and their wild journey from maiden to mother. Ultimately, this podcast is for women who want to thrive and have inner peace, learning how to take radical responsibility for their life and shed victimhood for good. I am Diana. I am an Enneagram 9. My sun sign is Virgo. I don't know what my rising sign is, but I have like five other planets in Virgo, so a lot of Virgo in my chart. Um, I am a lover of children. My favorite moments in a day are the early morning and at night when I snuggle up with my youngest boy. Something I have overcome in my life is having a child with pretty severe special needs. I am passionate about mothering. I am proud of myself for how strong I am, both physically and otherwise. And um, thank you for having me on. It's always really fun to get on another podcast and talk about my work. I am also a podcast host and I basically started the podcast that I needed after the birth of my first child. So um, I was planning to have a home birth with that baby and I understood inherently all of the problems with the maternity care system and the obstetric model of care. Like that was very obvious to me to avoid um, right out the gate. But what I did not understand was that midwives can bring that to you. And I was really naive and I just thought, I'll hire a home birth midwife. I'll have a home birth. I'm young. I'm healthy. You know, done. Easy. I'll avoid the trauma. And the sort of abbreviated version of what happened in that birth was um, when I was like deep, deep into labor, like not able to speak. I mean, deep into labor. It had been going on around like 24 hours. And I think my midwife was tired. She kept saying to me, I think you're tired. You're too tired. And I wasn't. I was working really hard, but I was okay. But I think she was tired. And she suggested that we transfer. And at that point, I mean, you understand, I'm sure, the laboring brain. But like all I heard was something is wrong and we need to transfer because I trusted my midwife. But absolutely nothing was wrong. There was no concerning heart tones. I remember like feeling my baby move around. Like I, I knew everything was fine. Um, but I was not able to advocate for myself in any way because I was in labor. And my husband like didn't know, like what's he gonna say? No, you know. So we transferred, and what transpired at the hospital was just the classic cascade of interventions. It happened to me, and I had even known that term before having this baby. I knew the term, the cascade of interventions, and it still happened to me. And so ended in a C-section, you know, after breaking water, Pitocin, all that stuff, which I don't know why they even did that because I was in labor. It's just, 
I guess what they do. Wait, what were you feeling if you knew about the cascade of interventions and they were happening to you? What were you feeling? What was your conscious level? What was your brain? I don't know. Or were you disassociated? That's a great question. I was partly disassociated, but I also, once I was at the hospital, I was just a completely passive participant. I was not able to participate in my labor process at all because they're hooking you up to things. And like, I also, I think I knew very deep down that I was not safe there and that I really didn't want to be there. And it's very hard to explain how, like when you're at it, my brain was not able to say no to my midwife at the state that I was in. It was like, all I heard was you need to go and you are the authority in this birth experience. And so like, that's just where my head was at. And then once I was at the hospital, it was like, I had no, I just had no agency. And so I wasn't in a place where I could say, don't do that because I was there and that's what they do. I mean, going to a hospital and saying, don't do anything to me when I'm in labor is just not, you know, if you go to the hospital, you're getting the hospital things. So does that I also, answer your question? Yeah, I also have a question on mm-hmm. where was your mind frame with a midwife? Did you look at her as your savior? I know I would say that I thought I had to have someone there to give birth. I thought I needed a woman there, a wise woman there, like this was way before I had ever heard the term free birth or even understood why someone would choose that. So I just thought, I didn't think that she was going to save me from the experience. I didn't look at her like as a God or anything. I just thought, I just thought I needed another woman there to help me give birth or to make sure the baby was okay afterwards. I, it's very strange. You're asking a really good question because my mindset has changed so drastically, you know, in the 11 years since that experience that I, I know unequivocally, I, you don't need anyone else to give birth. But I just thought, I thought that that's what you needed to do. And it already seemed a little bit radical to give birth at home. I didn't really know anyone who was doing that at the time. My family certainly thought it was strange. You know, my mom never wouldn't have considered that, you know, with myself and my sister. So it already felt a little radical just to give birth at home. And I just thought, someone has to be there. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Because a lot of us did not know unassisted birth was a thing. And so if you don't know that it exists, it wouldn't even occur to you. Right? Yeah. So it makes sense. Yeah, never even occurred to me. And um, like I said, I really naively did not understand some of the problems with licensed midwifery in the same in the way that I profoundly do now not only because of that lesson that I had to learn the hard way but also because of just what I do professionally now so so that birth experience left me just absolutely shattered like I couldn't believe that that had happened to me and I had PTSD flashbacks from the surgery which was just awful my son and I really struggled to bond. We had breastfeeding problems. We had all of the problems that you just hear over and over again in overly medicalized births. We had all the problems postpartum that you hear all the time. And so um, that experience totally shattered me. And getting back to why I started the podcast that I needed, um, you know, I had had, I think it was around 10 or 11 years ago that podcasts really became a thing. You know, like people started listening to them. And um, more creators popped up. And so I had been listening to all of these beautiful home birth stories, getting really excited for my own um, home birth. And now I had a podcast feed full of 
happy home birth stories. And I had had a birth that just completely did not go that way. And I was deep into really judging myself. I was very, very unkind with myself. And I really felt like an absolute failure. I just lots of, I couldn't listen to the good stories, I guess is what I'm saying. And I I remember scrolling through the feeds and, and trying to find stories that happened like mine, partly because I wanted to understand how this happened to me. And secondly, um, when I heard other women's stories, and this is why story medicine, I think, is so powerful. Um, I was able to empathize with them deeply, and I wasn't judging them in the same way that I was judging myself. And so by listening to other women's stories that were kind of like mine or similar, it almost like allowed me to have more compassion for myself. And I desperately needed that um, in that time. And so that just kind of was something I thought about. And I certainly wasn't in a place to create a podcast. Um, I was deep in like my own pain and, um, you know, had a newborn and all that stuff. But uh, about a couple years later, I became unexpectedly pregnant with my second son. And um, that, that pregnancy and birth is where the healing and the transformation happened for me. I'm so grateful. I mean, I think that all pregnancies are a massive gift from God, but this one was like, I didn't want it. I wasn't looking for it. I was super freaked out when I found out I was pregnant, but oh my God, the greatest gift of my life was this experience. And I just did so much healing and I had to, um, I had to look like contend with birth again. And, um, I had to make different decisions. I also was living in a state where it wasn't legal for a midwife to attend you at home um, if you had had a C-section, I think the law has since changed. It's, I know it's crazy your face. You're wow, right. Yeah. Um, but you know, at the time it was just illegal. And I, again, I hadn't, I mean, now I would just free birth, <laughs> but I like, it still hadn't, that idea hadn't quite come into my consciousness yet. And so I like real, I mean, I really had to <laughs> find like the underground women that are like, okay, well you're off the books, you know, and you know, find someone who'd be willing to attend me at home. Cause I still thought, I still thought I needed someone there. I really didn't. And this birth experience totally proved that to me. Um, and so I had this beautiful healing, redemptive, just beautiful birth at home, caught my own baby, pulled him up onto my chest, did it all myself. And, you know, after having a baby cut out of your body in an emergency room or a, a surgical suite, it's really hard to explain what it's like to get a do-over. I mean, it is, it was the most powerful experience of my life getting to have a VBAC birth with that baby at home in my own bed. No one touching him, no one taking him away from me, no one touching me in a way I didn't want. It was just, it was, it was, it was healing not only for me, but for the whole family. It was just the medicine that we needed. And so after that experience, like so many moms, that so many moms that I talk to say they do the exact same thing. I like quit my corporate job. I'm like, I'm devoting my life to birth work. I have to, I have to like talk about this experience. Like this is so transformative and powerful. And so I, I, um, did, I did a few things I did at first. I really wanted to work with, um, I was really interested in working with women that had had traumatic birth experiences because I knew what it was like. I knew how common it was. And um, I had experienced healing, so I felt integrated enough that I could like hold their stories. And so for a while, I did that. I worked with women. I did. I did. A, um, what's the birth story medicine training with? What's her name? She's a famous lady. I can't remember her name now, though. But uh, I, I got some trainings under my belt, and I worked with women one on one for a while. And um, 
you know, listened to their stories and, and, um, held their pain and didn't tell them, you know, well, you got a healthy baby out of it or didn't dismiss anything that they had to say. And hopefully was of service to those women. But eventually I decided that actually, if I started a podcast, that podcast that was still in my brain from, you know, two and a half years ago when my first son was born, I thought I could just reach more people if I just created a podcast where we talked about healing from a traumatic birth experience and sharing, you know, I, I want, I want people to get a couple of things out of my show. And you reflect back to me if this is clear, because it's the most important things. I want people to know that if you had a traumatic birth experience, it does not have to be the way that way the second time the hope is not over for you. Um, things can and will be different the next time, almost certainly, because you're not the same person. It's not the same baby. And, um, I want my, my, I want to share stories of hope. The second thing that I very sneakily want to do with my show that I think probably comes through is convey the message that we have a very broken maternity care system that is hurting women and babies. And I don't need to interject my opinion. I don't need to say a word because the stories speak for themselves. And um, I, I, I want that to be clear because I want better for all of us. I don't want any other woman to go through what I went through and what many of the women on my podcast share. I want I I actually believe that we just need to leave that system behind. I don't think it serves us. Um, Maybe if you have a micro preemie, I'm glad that there's a NICU for a 24 week old, like, you know, obviously I'm speaking within reason, but for the most part, I really think that uh, we need to walk away from hospital birth completely. And so I have been uh, podcasting for, this is my fifth season of podcasts called Healing Birth and shared hundreds of stories of, women's birth stories that I hope have given hope to other people who've, you know, had the same experience that I have. And again, illustrate that um, when women birth autonomously and with agency, healing happens. And when women birth in such a way that they are not sovereign, there is an external authority and they're pathologized, deep trauma and pain happens. And so that is a little bit about who I am and some of the experiences that I've had that have um, shaped me thus far. I was going to point out that exact thing, what you just said, that your story of the classic cascade of interventions to the C-section broke you or tried to break you, right? It pummeled you, your spirit. You were traumatized. You were in pain. You couldn't even bond with your baby. And that is so many women across the world, it's not even a US thing, right? Because the C-section rates in some countries are like 60% or 70%. There's a country like Brazil that has like this insane C-section rate. And Mm -hmm. so it's not just the USA, it's all over the world. It's everywhere as far as I can tell. Everywhere. Yes. Yes. And and it it tries to break women and, and it mostly does because it leaves women in this state of absolute pain and trauma. And then you got to experience the way nature designed birth. And it woke you up and you're like the whole world, every woman needs to hear this story because I have seen the light. I have experienced birth in the way nature designed it. 
And it has made me into a new woman that I love and that anyone can have, you know, if they want. Yes. Seeing the light. That's, that's a great way to put it. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's so cool just to have two ends of the spectrum. You know, not everybody needs to feel both ends of the spectrum, you know, to have those experiences, but to have that is powerful. You, that's yeah, your experience. Yes. And I, you know, I now see in retrospect how like God's hand was even in that, even though on one level, what happened in my first birth was wrong and it hurt me. Yes. On another level, it served a purpose because I know, I know that if I had just had an uncomplicated birth at home with that first baby, I would not have the depth of compassion that I have for other women. I might have even been a bit arrogant. I might have been like, well, obviously you just have your baby at home. Like don't enter the C-section factory and you won't get a C-section. You know what I'm saying? Like I might've even thought that way. Um, but I was humbled by this experience and I, I can, f- I mean, yeah, the having, for me personally, having the full, like both ends of the spectrum means that I can hold a level of compassion that is deep and very genuine, but my healing is also integrated. And so I'm not like in a, oh, like victimized, ragey, raging with you, like down in the depths with you kind of place. You know, I can kind of, I can kind of hold it all is what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to go into your son or your miscarriage next? Let's talk about my son. So this is the son. Um, this is the son that was my firstborn son that we had that challenging initial experience with. And um, he, he is diagnosed with autism. And um, I want to kind of define that a little bit because I feel like that word has been very, very um, dilute. Like it could kind of mean anything, right? It can mean like someone who's a little quirky and someone who just, you know, has specific interests or it can mean someone who is in diapers and literally non-functioning. So um, he is the type of person, I also want to say that, you know, anytime that I talk about him publicly, I, I think of him listening. And so it's very important to me that I speak about him in the highest. You you understand what I'm saying? So he is um, the kind of kid that I'm not sure he, I don't know if he will ever live independently from us. Um, I'll just say it that way. Like he, he, um, he, he is verbal, but he, he does not communicate like other people do. He's just completely unique in every way. And, um, Sometimes it feels a little bit like uh, living with someone who just speaks a completely different language and you're, you have a bit of a language barrier, but you're trying to meet each other halfway. Like that's a little bit like what it feels like. So he is a very interesting person. And um, I, have, I have theories about who he is and what he came here to be. But um, it's easy. It, it's definitely true to say that he is my greatest teacher. And um, I am very, very grateful for the unique and interesting person that he is. But I, I want to get back to defining autism a little bit because, like I said, it can mean so many things. And this is just my perspective as someone who has a child with that label and also has been in community with other moms that have kids like my kid. 
Um, I don't think what we call autism is all one thing. I think it's a couple of different things. And I think that part of it, this has to be said, um, is neurological damage from vaccines. And I'm saying that because I have, I have sat in rooms with women that look me in the eye and they say, my son went in for his 18 month shot, had a seizure, was never the same, regressed, stopped looking at me, stopped talking. And I'm telling you, Leah, these women are not lying. And you know, there is this whole like social media movement around believe women, you know, like believe us when we talk about sexual assault and yeah, yeah. You, you should, but like believe mothers too. Like we're also women, like believe us, like trust me, no one wants to say that because you'll get ridiculed and it's not fun. But um, so I do think that that's part of what autism is. There's obviously other ways that you can have brain damage or, um, you know, have things in your body that affect neurological functioning, I'll say. And so I think that's part of it. And then on the other side of the spect of the spectrum, or I guess I, I should say like within this whole umbrella, I really, really do think that there are some kids that are born that are just, they have a different consciousness. They just, there's something about them that is different and they might appear to be a little bit weird to us and we don't really understand them, but they're just, they're just different. It could be, I don't know what it is. It could be genetics. It could be spiritual in nature. I don't know. But I think that those two groups of kids, because they sometimes present similarly, all get lumped into this thing we call autism. And I just, I don't think it's all the same thing. Um, you know, and keep in mind too, the autism is not like a blood test. It's not like, there's no, I mean, as far as a diagnosis, it's a checklist. It's a huge checklist, but that's what it is. And so I don't think that, I don't think that we fully understand it. Um, I don't think we have really good solutions for kids that present this way. And I'm happy to talk about my experience with that too, if you want. But um, that is my one woman's one mother's perspective on it. And um, yeah, I can, I can, what, what do you want to know? I want to, I want to know how your mothering with him has changed because I was watching love on the spectrum recently and Oh my gosh. I mean, I'm sure, you know, all of them are very varying differences with within autism. But there was this mm -hmm. there was this mother that said, "I spent my first years um shuffling him to this doctor and this therapy and this and this and and I was so stressed out and he was suffering because of my stress." And she's like, yes. "When I finally loved him and supported him unconditionally for who he is around like 10 years old, I think is probably when she figured that out. He blossomed. <gasps> wow. Oh, yes. And that's in that show. And I resonated with that so deeply because, right, she was, she was like, something's wrong, something's wrong, something's wrong. And then she did full acceptance of who yes. he is and who he came here to be. And he is pure yes. light, pure light. Oh wow, I love that. Oh my gosh, I relate to that so much. I mean, I could I could say those exact same words um exactly. I mean, we it's scary when you when you realize your child is so different from other people and you have experts telling you what you need to do to fix him. It's a terrifying place to land and definitely one of the biggest challenges of my life. Um how any mother lives through that actually, I don't know how we do it. It's awful. Um 
But yeah, I think that probably most moms of kids with special needs go through that phase where you're, you know, taking them to appointments and trusting the experts. And I will say this is our, I mean, my experience sounds very similar to that woman's. Um, he hate, I could tell that Arik felt like we're constantly trying to fix you, you know, like speech therapy, um, occupational therapy. Um, what else do we do? A little bit of ABA, like you're different. We need to fix you. And that energy is so destructive and it's not good. And I'm telling like the most peace that we have ever had in our family and the best relationship that I've ever had with, with Arik is when I just accepted exactly who he, who he is and appreciated actually the beauty in him because he is, he is, he is an amazing person. Um, if you ever met him, he has the most beautiful, deep, liquidy brown eyes you've ever seen. It's just like looking into like a te- like a chocolate teddy bear of love. Like he is, and his his energy is so gentle. He's like big, gentle teddy bear. Um, just a very, very deep lover of children and animals. Like his spirit, his soul is beautiful. And um, I'm gonna start crying. He, I'm crying. Um, he's just a very special person, and. I also, a huge lesson that I've learned throughout this is that, and I guess this was another lesson that I had to learn, um, was that it's so funny because I say this to other women all the time, but I guess I had to learn this lesson is that I actually am the expert of my own child, me, (laughs) like me and my husband, we're better at supporting him as he grows and moves through this world than literally every, any other expert that we ever worked with. Like we know, we know better how to help him, you know, speak more, how to help him feel more comfortable in social situations, how to support his health. Like we know. And I think that Arik was really asking on some level, like on a soul level for us to step into that role, you know, to really step in. I mean, that's, that's real adulthood, you know? I mean, I, I had the, the, the awakenings years ago. I can talk about this too if you want. Um, professionally, before I do what I do now, I worked for um, I worked in the health insurance field, and so I worked for I worked for all of the large health insurance carriers. So if you've ever had health insurance through an employer, I worked for that company. So I had already had this like awakening with the medical system through that job and seeing what I saw that I was like, okay. I'm comfortable with independence from that and really stepping into full responsibility for my health and for the health of my children and not relying on anyone in that way. Like stepping outside of that, I was already comfortable with. But the second layer, the deeper layer of it was, oh, so now you have a quote unquote real problem. Like now are you really able to step into yeah. self-authority and and really like be the parent that this kid needs and not outsource anything? So I feel like Arik's soul was really, this is why I say he's uh, one of my biggest teachers is because he taught me that. And I feel like he was, he was asking me and my husband to step into that. And it's been so, it's just been uh, such a blessing. And I love accepting who he is. It feels really good. It's so beautiful. What I'm hearing also is how your first son through the, you know, this diagnosis is getting you to embody trust, trust of your mothering, mm-hmm. trust at this embodiment level, not this logical level. You yeah. know how to parent your own son. These experts don't know. You know. 
And then your second son with the home birth, the magical, good, amazing home birth, that was a that was trust too, but totally yeah. different, but the same, but different. Mm-hmm. And and I just think all of these souls come in trying to orient us towards trust. And and it's like, are we gonna, are we gonna, are we gonna do it? Are we gonna embody it? Are we gonna right? Yeah. And 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 it's not just one chance that we get, right? It's over and over and over and over again. We get, oh, okay, we we didn't we chose that in fear. Okay. Well, today there's a new opportunity in trust. Every day is a new day. And in motherhood, there's constantly these opportunities, big ones and daily little ones. But it sounds like you're yes. both of your sons are like, yes. Mama, embody trust. And now and now you probably are to a deeper level than ever before. Uh, definitely. But that also makes me think, okay, what's the next time I get to, I get to lean into trust? What's the next challenge that's what coming about, up for me? What about um, your miscarriage? What were the lessons of that? Oh man, I think that that is, that's such a logical place to go in this conversation because um, that has been a whole, that it's actually something I'm still going through right now. So um, it's relevant to know that after my second son was born, my husband got a, a vasectomy because both of our, both pregnancies just like happened and we weren't trying and 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 he he felt very much like he did not want to have any more children. And I felt like, well, I was kind of like, you know, I, I wasn't, I didn't feel really strongly one way or the other. And I felt like it was his body and I'm massively opposed to any sort of hormonal birth control. I think it's just brutalizing for the female body and I'm like not into it. So I, I was like, okay, if that's what you want to do. And, and um, so that's what we did. And he, he ha- had the vasectomy and then after a couple of months of having the procedure done, he felt like something wasn't right in his body, which, which it wasn't because he was surgically altered. Um, but he felt just, um, it would be interesting to have him describe it because I'm not a man and I don't have testicles, but he, he, he said it felt like there was like an energy flow that wasn't working properly, which of course, again, it, it wasn't. Um, and you know, my husband is a guy who does a lot of Tai Chi, does a lot of yoga. Like he's into he's into like energy flowing through his body. Like he, he has like literacy around all of that. And so it shouldn't have been a surprise that he felt this way. Um, and so for, for a while, like we just, you know, he had, he didn't like it, but we, you know, we weren't, um, the doors weren't open to conceive because of this procedure. Um, and then eventually I think after a year he had it reversed, he went to like this renowned vascular micro vascular surgeon that reversed the, um, reversed the vasectomy. And then, um, after that he was like, sorry if this is like too much information, but he was very it's careful. Not. You're about- painting, you're painting the picture. It, it all ties together for a while after that, he was like very careful about not coming inside of me or doing anything that would create a pregnancy. And mm-hmm. so that's kind of where we were for a few years. And then, um, about two and a half years ago, maybe three years at this point, I, yes, because it was after we moved to Hawaii. We moved to Hawaii in 2020. And once we got settled here, um, I just strongly feel that there's another baby that wants to come. Like just very strongly. I, I feel like I know who who she is. I know her name. Um, 
And I just felt it so strongly. And I started talking to him about it. And he, he was like, no, no. And then eventually he started saying, yeah, I think you're right. He's like, yeah, there is another. So he felt it too. And he also feels this like little girl energy. And, and so a couple of years ago now, so yeah, he, we just like decided to open the door to conception and not prevent, not really try, but, but not prevent. And, um, I, a year and a half ago, uh, did become pregnant. It was around, yeah, Thanksgiving of Thanksgiving of 2022 or something. Um, and that I, I had a very early miscarriage and I, in a way I feel kind of, I say that because I don't feel like I went through like a physically traumatic thing. It was really early. It was like six or seven weeks. So the, the physical experience of releasing it, um, really wasn't traumatic for me, but the pregnancy was real. I mean, I felt I felt pregnant. I felt this spirit with me. And, uh, oh, I'm going to try to cry again. Um, I think one of the things that was the most challenging to get through it was that it wasn't really real for anyone else, not even my partner, because I didn't look pregnant. Like he wasn't experiencing what I was experiencing. No one knew, like no one in my family. I mean, none of my friends, like it was just an entirely internal experience for me, except then I did, I did share on social media. But, um, yeah, it was really, it was, that was very hard, but the the interesting part about it was that after I physically lost pregnancy, I can still feel this little girl around me. Like she's still there. I can still feel her around. It's so interesting. And I've never had that experience before. Both of my boys, I was completely I had no idea I was pregnant. Didn't even find out until like seven, eight weeks. Like I, my period was gone for like, like two weeks, three weeks. And I finally figured it out. Like I had, no, I was so unconscious. I had no clue. Didn't feel their spirit energy. Didn't really know who they were until they were born. And I got to know them. But this experience, like I, I it's totally different. And so um, that was a couple years ago and I'm still not pregnant. I'm really desiring to be pregnant. And I am, this is the process I'm in now though, where it's like, can I trust that, that if this child is going to come, it's going to come at the right time. Can I trust that I'm not broken? You know, that my body is not, there's not something wrong that I have to fix, but that, you know, there's ultimately a much larger plan in place for my life and for the life of what, whoever the soul is and for my whole family. And that is the sort of the where I find myself today. And, and lately my, my daily prayer is like, I just pray like, God help me to just trust you and just trust that, you know, that, um, what is, what is for me is already mine. And, and that I don't have to like be in control of this. So yeah. Yeah. And trust is an evolution. Like that's my whole life experience. And it's everyone's is it's an everyday thing. It's an every year thing. Like it, it, you, you don't arrive at this spot of like, Oh, I I trust God. And now everything is rosy and peachy. It it is a, it is a practice, right? Yes. And, and it's same with gratitude, right? People are just like, Oh, 
people think gratitude just falls upon you. Like it just happens to you. No, it's a practice. And so is trust. It's an actual action. And so it's an actual practice. And a lot of people say, you know, trust God, surrender to God. And no one talks about what is the action. So if I want to trust God, how do I implement that today? Tell me, you know, like, what is the action? And I love, I've, I've talked about this before because to me, this is the most interesting thing is that we talk about abstract things as a culture, you know, let go, let God, trust God, but no one's talking about what is the actual action to implement today to do that. And I think it's probably different for everyone, but I personally think that it's the mind. It's surrendering the worries, the control, the ruminating thoughts to this higher power, you know, that we believe it has our best interest. But it's hard sometimes because we have this mind in us that's like, oh, I'm not so sure about that because I just miscarried and I'm not so, so sure about that because I'm still not pregnant. You know, like I haven't gotten pregnant in so many years and that's my whole story. And Mm -hmm. it's a constant practice and it's a constant evolution. And I think the preconception phase is so much practice for motherhood and for birth because we just keep getting faced with it. Okay, now birth is here. Can we trust birth? Can I trust my body? Can I trust my baby with birth? Okay, motherhood is here. I have to breastfeed. Can I trust my baby? Can I trust my body with breastfeeding? Can I trust? Can I trust? My, my child is a teenager and they're leaving the house. You know, they're going to college. Okay. Okay. I don't have control over them. Can I trust them? Like, it, we never stop getting faced with these situations of trust. It's a constant practice. Oh, totally. And your words are so healing. Honestly, like that gives me so much peace to know that because it's true. You're, you're, what you're saying is true. We, we practice trusting and then it just continues on forever. But I do want to add, I also think there's an element of grace that can come in with this process. And I, I believe that when sometimes I like, I just ask for a little bit of help, <laughs> like, can you meet, just help me to trust a little bit? And like, Add, add a little bit of grace in there and like, cool, then I can like meet you halfway. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> oh, I do want to tell you though, that I have, I have a spirit daughter as well. And she's the one that's pressing me to come out on my birth page. Like wow. she's the reason. I do wonder about your insurance company thing, because that's like your unique story. And I've like heard you do a podcast on it. So health insurance. I I love to talk about this because this is information that I wish every average person knew. So working in health insurance, the the health insurance industry is set up, it's incentivized to pool people together and then like the healthy people pay for the sick people and people, you know, the health insurers make money, hospitals make money, it all works out and you're paying into this pool. And so one of the huge this is the thing that like really shocked me the most that I I didn't realize until I actually looked at the data. So, you know, working in the role that I was in, I saw a lot of clinical like claims data and there's all kinds of like quality 
control metrics that, you know, just very, all kinds of data. Insurance is very data driven is what I'm trying to say. And I could see all of this data. And so one things that health insurers always do is they try to promote um, preventative care um, procedures, like to be, to be free for their members, you know, like it's free if you go in and you get a pap smear or mammogram or whatever men do or whatever age related. I don't even know what it is because I don't participate in, in any of it. Um, because the idea is that if you do those things, you're catching big problems early, therefore preventing really expensive claims and preventing, you know, long-term disease and sickness, which ultimately costs the health insurer more money because they want healthy people paying into the pool. Did I, did I explain that correctly? Yeah. I, I know it's not rocket science, but like, so that's what they do. And I remember constantly like looking at the claims data, like at a very high level, um, you know, aggregated thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And what the data always shows is that it's, you don't reduce healthcare costs by going into your doctor and getting recommended screenings. What you actually do is increase the amount of um, times you go see the doctor, meaning that the more healthcare you consume, the more healthcare you consume. That's the way that the math always works. And now, so so there was never any proof of preventing cancers by doing cancer screenings is my point. And I know that this sounds really heretical. And every time I've said this publicly, I get someone yelling at me like, my mom would have died if she hadn't got her bone, whatever. And like, okay, maybe that's true. I'm glad your mom's still alive. <laughs> like, But it also might not be true. Just throwing it out there. Yes. Because we only know our one lived ex- lived experience. Yeah. We create these stories in our head of, I would have died if I didn't do this or that. But that is a story and we can never know and we'll never know the alternative choice ever, ever. That is literally just right. a story in our head. And yeah, you know, statistically, maybe that could very well be true, but it is a story and it can never be proven because we can never know what an alter- alternative choice in our life could have ended up as. It's a story in our head. It is. And I also have a theory, and this is, again, probably going to sound kind of out there, but I have a theory that a lot of these um, procedures that are preventative procedures are very traumatic to us, actually. They're inherently traumatic. And I think that when you're traumatizing yourself, there's probably some psychological term for this, but you you have to, um, you, <laughs> you have to like, you have to like accept it and rationalize it. And then you become sort of trauma bonded to the system or the the people in the system. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. I'm probably not articulating this right, but I, I'm convinced that trauma has something to do with it too, because there's no way that some of those procedures and tests are not traumatizing your body. And there's no way that on some level, you know that. Well, well, yeah, just think of the example of, you know, if if you go get a pap smear, you know, of course I don't partake in that whole thing either. But if I went to a doctor and they found these abnormal cells on my cervix and they're like, oh my gosh, you have cancer and you have to do this. And then, and I believe that story because I don't believe that story. I believe in, you know, more so German new medicine perspectives that those cells are the healing phase of an emotional conflict. And I think I've lived through it personally myself. Um, yes. And if I went to a doctor during that phase, I think I probably would have been diagnosed with cancer. And that's why I don't go to doctors. So I don't get diagnosed yep. purposely. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Because I don't want to know. 
because that's how I'm protecting myself. If I went in and then have this story that they saved me, just like in birth, yes, then you get trauma bonded and you will be their number one fan. Exactly. Exactly. And you will go back and you will go back and you will go back and you'll go back and you'll be the number one customer because of this story that they saved you. And maybe it's true, but I don't think so for the most part. Yeah. I I also don't think that, um, like the medical profession really understands the human body. I also align with the German new medicine philosophy kind of more than anything at this point in my life. It's the only thing that makes sense. And so when you, when you are aligned with that philosophy and you look at the way that the human body is treated within the medical system, it's actually like the opposite of what would be healing. And so, um, yeah, it was just really wild working in that industry and seeing like right in front of me, the data that, that like more healthcare doesn't mean healthy people <laughs> and like looking around and being like, is anyone else paying attention? And, no, no one is. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I like to share that anecdote because I think that it's powerful to know that the things that you're told that you just have to do because you're in a human body and you have to go to the doctor to check this out or do whatever, like that's completely optional. You can, if you want to, but nobody has to do that. And you're not, I don't think it's irresponsible. I think it's actually very responsible to be careful about who you allow literally into your body. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. All right, Diana, I want to end with you just giving a little description on your current season of life because the constant of life is that it changes. And in a year from now, your season of life will be different in some way. Oh, thank you. It's so sweet to get to um, reflect on this right now. Thank you for that question. Um, I'm so blessed. My season of life right now is honestly beautiful. Um, I live on this incredibly beautiful sacred island. I'm so, so blessed to be here. Um, My two boys are at very fun ages. They're 10 and 8. And both of them bring me so much joy. I mean, I can't even tell you how much I love being a mom. They are just the absolute lights of my lives. And every day my youngest makes me laugh hysterically. And every day my oldest like nearly moves me to tears with his sweet, gentle nature. And um, I just love that I get to be with them. You know, we we live a very alternative lifestyle, like both Brad and I work from home and we're not like we don't like have an external boss. We both kind of do our own thing. And so we're able to be fully present with our kids and um, we homeschool one kid and the other kid goes to like sort of a independent co-op. Montessori type school. And so we're able to sort of meet their both individual needs and be of still a very close family. Um, and I have work that I love. I am so passionate about podcasting. I love that I get to speak to women all over the world about their birth experiences. Like I said, I've been doing this for five years and I'm literally never bored. Every story is so unique. They're, they're all different. Some of them are heartbreaking. Some of them are absolutely mind-blowingly beautiful and it's meaningful work for me. I feel that it's my dharma and it's why I'm here. I think that a huge part of my life path, the challenges that came that came before really led me to this and it feels it feels really exciting to be doing work that is meaningful and that is well received and I feel really really 
blessed. I am longing for another child and that's part of the that's also part of the season that I'm in now, but I'm I also do know and you reflected I mean you reflected back to me so beautifully that like the waiting is part of it. It's 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 part of it and it's necessary and so um that's kind of a snapshot of my life now. I feel very very blessed and thank you so much for um inviting me on your show and allowing me to speak and for the way that you show up in the world and all of the, I don't know, like the truth and beauty that you put out into the world too.